Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Michael Sleesman, Managing Director and Research Scholar at the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, Caitlin Braswell, Wilburn Bolton, MD, Grace Hunley, MD, and CBHD Fellow Gregory W. Rutecki, MD, offer the next installment of Clinical Ethics Dilemmas with a case study entitled End of Life Care in the Long-Term Cancer Survivor. The series of clinical ethics case studies originally appears in Ethics in Medicine, International Journal of Bioethics, and is used by permission. First, though, an announcement regarding our upcoming 2011 annual summer conference, The Scandal of Bioethics, Reclaiming Christian Influence in Technology, Science, and Medicine. An announcement regarding the Early Bird Special. Register early and receive a $25 discount toward the conference, institutes, or seminars. This discount cannot be applied toward academic credit. In addition, if you register before April 15, 2011, you will receive a free downloadable MP3 version of the conference audio. A discount code will be mailed to you with information on how to download your audio when it becomes available. This discount code cannot be applied to a CD version of the conference audio. Register today at www.cbhd.org forward slash scandal. End of Life Care in the Long-Term Cancer Survivor by Caitlin Braswell, Wilburn Bolton, MD, Grace Hundley, MD, and Gregory W. Rutecki, MD. Column Editor Ferdinand D. Yates, Jr., MDMA, Co-Chair of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignities Healthcare Ethics Council. Column Editor's Note. This column presents a problematic case that poses a medical ethical dilemma for patients, families, and healthcare professionals. As it is based on a real case, some details have been changed in the effort to maintain patient confidentiality. In this case, a patient with a long-term disease experiences a prolonged period of relative wellness and is lost to follow-up until fatal complications evolve. The case is complicated by the lack of adequate surrogacy. Question. How should the family and the medical team proceed with medical care when there is conflict over treatment options in a long-term cancer survivor in the absence of clear surrogacy? Case Presentation A 53-year-old African-American man who had been diagnosed with a rare and aggressive type of cancer more than 25 years ago was recently admitted to the hospital for severe hypoglycemia and was unresponsive to stimulation. This was his first admission to this particular hospital, and, most recently, he had been under hospice services in the community. At the time of his initial diagnosis of cancer, the treatment included craniectomy for a brain metastasis. Subsequent multiple chemotherapeutic regimens, including experimental therapies, were attempted with temporary respites of tumor growth. He returned to his original community after the academic center told him that they had no further curative treatment to offer. Apparently, hospice and comfort care were not explicitly discussed. Surprisingly, despite the aggressive nature of the underlying malignancy, the patient was lost to medical follow-up 
and apparently had minimal complications for many years. At the time of presentation, with hypoglycemia, the workup documented a large metastatic tumor in the liver, and he also had extensive metastatic disease in the lungs, kidneys, and pancreas. In addition, the patient had visible tumor masses throughout much of his subcutaneous tissue. Initially, the patient was conversant for short intervals, but he seemed unwilling to engage in medical decision-making with or without the presence of his family. He expressed no particular religious preference in any of the hospital records. At times, even after correction of the hypoglycemia, he was confused, unresponsive, or belligerent with caretakers, and after the first week of hospitalization, he was no longer communicative. Despite his previous entry into hospice care, the attending physicians were surprised to learn that certain family members wanted further medical treatment other than palliative care. Specifically, the patient had a massive tumor on his upper right arm that was not causing pain or circulatory embarrassment, and the family insisted that it be surgically removed despite the physician's opinion that such a course of action would be invasive, burdensome, and futile. A medical consultant agreed with the family, and a meeting was arranged for the family and the medical team. The patient was not married, but had a common-law relationship for more than 10 years. However, he had been estranged from his female partner for the past 15 years. The patient had a son living in the same community, and they saw each other several times each week. The relationship was described as a good one, and the medical team felt that the son was likely the most appropriate member of the family to speak on the patient's behalf. However, no one had been granted a durable power of attorney. There was no health care agent, and a living will was not available. The patient's son had assisted in the prior hospice placement. In addition, the son noted that he and his father had some detailed conversation regarding his father's upcoming death with recall that his father had repeatedly told him that he wanted to die at home. His common-law partner and other relatives, verbally abusive at times, noted that the patient always refused to give up and that everything should be continued. The family and the medical team could not reach consensus on either the establishment of a do-not-resuscitate order or the reinstitution of hospice care. The estranged partner perceived that the improvement of the patient's glucose level was proof that he was responding to treatment and still fighting. An ethics consultation was requested. Denouement. The ethics consultant sympathized with the son and the healthcare team regarding the appropriateness of comfort care without resuscitation effort and continued hospice enrollment if the patient was discharged. An oncologist spoke to the family and told them there were no treatments that could reverse his terminal condition and that every effort would be made to make him comfortable. As the common-law partner no longer asked for surgical intervention, a temporary agreement to palliate without a do-not-resuscitate order was reached. Over the next week, the patient accumulated a large amount of abdominal fluid and developed increasing difficulty with breathing. However, he seemed comfortable with morphine. A few days later, the patient developed signs of pneumonia with fever, and his son asked for another family conference with the medical team. At this meeting, consensus was reached regarding comfort care, and a do-not-resuscitate order was initiated. The patient expired peacefully about two days later. 
Discussion. It was apparent that the patient defied all odds and survived much longer than anyone expected. However, his prolonged survival may have given everyone, including himself, his partner, and his son, unrealistic expectations. Earlier in the course of the illness, surgery and chemotherapy affected long periods without the obvious progression of an incurable malignancy. Medical situations such as this are not only rare, but also are difficult to employ in the typical cancer milieu. Nonetheless, physicians should be hopeful and yet remarkably circumspect when making any predictions regarding prog progression of disease and prognosis. A recent study revealed that women who were presumably cured from breast cancer, who in fact demonstrated manifestation of early as well as late-stage disease at the time of the initial diagnosis, had died from complications of breast cancer, not complications of treatment, 23 years after the initial diagnosis. The results of this study have led others to observe that physicians should be cautious in ascribing a complete cure to any cancer. Similar late recurrences have been documented with other tumors, including testicular and rectal cancers. In our case, during the course of his illness, the patient may have sincerely believed that he was cured despite mounting an undiagnosed evidence to the contrary. While he seemed to accept his prognosis, distant relations seemed to grasp at early respites from active disease, and any continuity of medical care relationships was hampered by interrupted geographic contingencies. The patient's health care may have been compromised by the lack of a primary care physician who typically would have established a long-standing relationship with the patient and family and who would also facilitate appropriate end-of-life care plans. In this specific situation, the healthcare team, the patient, and the patient's family were thrust into a chaotic situation without any background preparation or relationship and with limited medical information. The other prominent issue arising in this case is the notion of surrogacy. Although surrogates do sometimes make decisions for loved ones that are contrary to the wishes of the patient, the primary intent is for the surrogate to act on the patient's prior statements. In this scenario, most people would recognize that the patient's son should have had the authority for healthcare decision-making. He had the most intimate contact with his father, had conversation with his father regarding the terminal illness, and seemed to be in the best position to understand the limits of medicine in dealing with his father's malignancy. Being hopeful and yet circumspect in prognosis, identifying appropriate surrogate decision-makers, and developing trust through years of compassionate care are still the best ways to realize a dignified death with cancer. These interrelated activities are really the basis for appropriate health care and should be safeguarded in our sometimes fragmented system of providing health. Column Editor's Comment the primary concern of surrogacy should be that of enacting the medical decisions that represent the medical pr preferences expressed by the patient. Surrogacy may become a complicated problem because of a number of reasons. First, there is no directly appointed surrogate, as in our case. Second, the surrogate may not be willing or able to act as such. Third, the surrogate may not know the patient's medical preferences. Fourth, 
the surrogate's decisions may be in direct contradiction to the known choices and preferences of the patient. And fifth, the physicians may not be willing to employ the decisions made by the surrogate. Whereas each of the above reasons, and perhaps others, has its own peculiarities, we will focus on the first one, because in our case, the patient apparently had not selected a surrogate, and there were several family members who wished to speak for the patient. When there is no official surrogate speaking on behalf of the patient, the medical team necessarily must go the extra effort to learn what, if anything, the patient had said in prior discussion that may give some direction to the decision-making process. Many states have a Family Medical Decisions Act of some sort that allows other members of the family to express what they know about the patient's medical preferences and empowers the physicians to proceed with end-of-life care even if there is no surrogate. In addition, many states endorse a rank order of family and friends whom the physicians may enlist in the decision-making process. In my state of New York, the following is the authoritative order, patient spouse, adult children of the patient, surviving parents of the patient, and siblings of the patient. In certain situations, where a very close friend or neighbor or a religious person who has had intimate dealings with the patient, this information may be instrumental. Conflict among family members occurs occasionally in these situations, and the main hope of resolution typically lies in repeated conversations. Sometimes, the physicians may enable the family to agree to a time-limited trial of a particular treatment to see the effect on the patient's medical condition. And the physician may also enlist the family's help in setting particular therapeutic goals. This type of reasoning often helps the family jointly approach a more definitive end-of-life decision. That was End-of-Life Care in the Long-Term Cancer Survivor by Caitlin Braswell, Wilburn Bolton, MD, Grace Hundley, MD, and Gregory W. Rutecki, MD. Caitlin Braswell is a third-year medical student at the University of South Alabama. Wilburn Bolton, MD, is a resident in medicine at the University of South Alabama. Grace Hundley, MD, is assistant professor of internal medicine at the University of South Alabama. And Gregory W. Rutecki, MD, is professor of medicine and allied health services at the University of South Alabama. He also serves as a fellow of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. This case study originally appeared in Ethics in Medicine, an International Journal of Bioethics, Volume 26, Issue 3, Fall 2010, pages 143 to 146, and is used with permission. A print version of this case study, along with a suggested reading list, is available on our website at cbhd.org. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website at cbhd.org. My name is Michael Sleesman, and I'm the Managing Director and Research Scholar of the Center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.